محمدًا رسول الله ويقيدي أدنو إليه ساجدًا بجبيني اقبل صلاتي وللصواب بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد uh, so we were discussing the conquest of Mecca and uh, in our last lesson we had discussed the Prophet وسلم, reaching right outside the city of Mecca and uh, a number of famous people converted right then and there. Quickly remind me who were the people who converted outside of Mecca before he entered Mecca? Well, Abbas didn't convert outside of Mecca. Abbas converted closer to Medina. Abbas converted and he is considered to be a muhajir. Because his niyyah was to do hijrah. So it is true he converted before the conquest, but he converted closer to Medina. So who converted outside of Mecca? Sufyan. Who's Sufyan? Abu Sufyan. Which Abu Sufyan? <laughs> okay, so Muawiyah's father, but he converted towards the end. Before them was a cousin of the Prophet. Abu, Abu Sufyan ibn al-Harith, he converted, right? And along with him was his cousin as well. So two of the cousins of the Prophet converted. And Abu Sufyan converted, Abu Sufyan, the famous Abu Sufyan, he converted after Al-Abbas spent an entire night debating with him uh, in the camp of the Muslims. And uh, Allah Azza wa Jal basically blessed uh, Islam with the conversion of Abu Sufyan. Now, just a little bit of an interesting historical tidbit here. Um, you all know I gave the lecture on uh, Karbala and that is a very controversial lecture and whatnot. Uh, it is very interesting here uh, that someone wanted to kill Muawiyah, sorry Abu Sufyan, and the Prophet forbade him from doing so. Who is that person? Umar ibn al-Khattab. Interesting, right? And the dynamics of the group that now respects, or we should say over-respects the Alul Bayt, their perspective of Umar is what, right? And how they view Yazid, the grandson of Abu Sufyan. Here we have the dynamics. Umar wanted to execute Abu Sufyan multiple times, asking, come on, Ya Rasulullah, he has no this and that. The, he, so the Prophet actually said no. And this is very interesting. Uh, and of course, history, uh, the grandson of uh, Abu Sufyan is of course Yazid. Yazid ibn Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, right? And Umar is the one who wants to execute him. Had he been executed, then it would change the entire course of history. But Allah has a plan, and no one can overcome the plan of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, nonetheless, getting back to our topic here. So, uh, we are now on the 20th of Ramadan in the 8th year of the Hijrah. So, it is now the morning of the conquest of Mecca. The 20th of Ramadan, on the 8th year of the Hijrah, it is the morning of the conquest of Mecca. And the people of Mecca still do not know that the army is an hour away. Yani subhanAllah, when our Prophet made dua, O oh Allah, conceal my plan from the Quraysh. It is humanly impossible to conceal 10,000 people from the city. It's impossible. Yet, because of that dua, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not allow the plans of the Prophet to be exposed to the very, literally to the minute that the army walked in, a few minutes before that, we'll see what happened. That's when the people of Quraysh realized what's happening. SubhanAllah. And it is truly a miracle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that it was kept under such, uh, uh, if you like, secrecy. And the Prophet divided the army up. And Al-Waqidi and other books, they have a long detailed list of which tribe did what and who was given that. And these names are not interesting to most of us here. But we can say, to be very generic, that... There were three primary contingents, and each one of them had lots of smaller, uh, uh, if you like, subgroups. There were three primary contingents, uh, and on the one of them, the Prophet put the Ansar in charge. On the other, he put the Muhajirun in charge. And in the middle uh, was a mix and a group, and he was in the middle. And so, in the side of the Ansar, he placed Sa'd ibn Ubadah. Sa'd ibn Ubadah is the leader of the Ansar. Uh, pause here, there are two Sa'ds that were leaders of the Ansar. Sa'd ibn Mu'ad and Sa'd ibn Ubadah. And Sa'd ibn Mu'ad, when did he die? Jazakallah khair. Sa'd ibn Mu'ad, when did he die? Khandaq, right? And that's what the Prophet said, the throne of Allah has shook from the death of Sa'ad ibn Mu'ad. So the two Sa'ads were the leaders, one of them dies, the one Sa'ad remains. Sa'ad ibn Ubadah is the one who, when the Prophet passes away, the Ansar gather in his house, they want to make him the leader. 
This is Sa'd ibn Ubadah. This is that one. So, clearly he was given leadership roles in the life of the Prophet He is given the banner to take charge of the Ansar and all of the groups of the Ansar. And the Muhajirun have Khalid ibn al-Walid in charge. And uh, the, some of the scholars, Ibn uh, Al-Waqid, excuse me, mentions there were 700 Muhajirun and 4,000 Ansar. And the rest of them, 5,300, were from the other tribes, uh, Muzayna and Sulaim and others, the other tribes from around, uh, from around Medina. And as Sa'd ibn Ubadah is marching, he began to chant and cry out that, Today is the day of death and destruction. Malhama is the Armageddon, if you like. Today is the death of today is the day of blood and destruction. Today the Kaaba itself will lose its haram and become halal. Abu Sufyan heard this. And he rushed to the Prophet complaining that how can he say today the Kaaba will be made halal? So understand what does halal mean here? Halal means it will not be haram. And what does haram? We have said this at least ten times by now. Why is the haram called haram? It is from haram. Why is the haram called haram? Because that which might be halal outside of it has become haram inside of it. Even the plucking of leaves, even the hunting of animals, even blood that is allowed to be shed. You hunt an animal, it's haram in the haram. You cannot hunt gazelles and deers. You cannot uh, uh, go hunting or uh, pluck the trees that are wild as we have discussed in the books before, in, the, in our lecture series before. So the haram is sacred. It is sanctified. So Sa'ad says, today the haram will no longer be sanctified. So Abu Sufyan and the Quraysh have never verbally said the haram is halal. They might have done things that are against the haram, but technically they've always said the haram is haram. So he goes and he complains to the Prophet And the Prophet said, Kadaba Sa'ad. And Kadaba in Arabic, in, in modern Arabic it means he, is, he has lied. In classical Arabic, Kadaba means he's made a mistake. Kadaba means akhta'a, he made a mistake. Kadaba Sa'ad, this is wrong. And he ordered that the liwa or the banner be taken away from Sa'ad because of this mistake. And instead he gave it to Zubayr ibn al-Awwam who is a Qurashi. He gave it to his cousin Zubayr ibn al-Awwam. And the middle uh, battle or the middle uh, cavalry was led by Abu Ubaidah Amr ibn Jarrah. And so all of the leaders were from the Quraysh. And this clearly shows us the psychological awareness of the Prophet That the people who enter the Kaaba and the Haram should all be from the Quraysh. Let there be no non-Qurashi. He understood that only the Muhajirun should lead the Fatah into uh, Mecca. And it also shows us that the Prophet would make ijtihad, his reasoning, on the spot. That initially he chose Sa'ad, and Sa'ad is not a Qurashi. And when he heard something, he realized, you know what? This might cause problems. The Jahili sentiment might be risen. Or, and of course, I mean, Sa'ad, he didn't intend any evil, but he became overzealous. He said things he should not have said. He didn't intend any evil, but sometimes in your good you do things that you should not do. And so the Prophet took it away from him and gave it to another uh, Qurashi. And Abbas told Abu Sufyan, Abbas told Abu Sufyan that you had better rush back to Mecca and tell them not to fight. So we see here Abbas is acting as an intermediate between the Quraysh and the Prophet Remember he's the recent convert, his, his loyalties are with Allah and his messenger, but his heart is still somewhat attached to the Quraysh. After all, that is his tribe, his people, he's just left. So he tells Abu Sufyan, go back and warn the Quraysh not to fight. We don't want any bloodshed. And so Abu Sufyan rushes back into the city and this is when finally the people of Quraysh hear the news that the Prophet is right outside the city. Now honestly, it is truly mind-boggling how it is possible for an army of 10,000 to reach literally the, the, the door of the, uh, of, of the city of Mecca without anybody finding out. But this is the dua of the Prophet that Allah protected the army from even finding out when it is arriving. Otherwise, truly it is a miracle. Even the caravans between the cities, news reaches that the caravan is there, so-and-so is in the caravan. This is the way of the Arabs. But this largest army that Arabia had ever, had ever seen, it manages to make its way straight to Mecca without the being aware 
uh, that the, the Muslims were there. So Abu Sufyan rushes in on his horse and he is galloping and he is screaming at the top of his lungs, Ya Ma'ashara Quraysh, O tribe of Quraysh, Hadha Muhammad, here is Muhammad sallallahu he has come to you with an army, you can never fight. La qibala lakum biha. Don't even stand to fight it. So come to my house and you will be safe. Subhanallah, what did he just do now? The very last place of safety that the Prophet mentioned, he makes it the only place of safety. Forget the haram, forget your houses, come to my house, you will be safe. Now obviously this Abbas was so correct. What did Abbas say? That Ya Rasulullah, this is a man, he loves leadership. He loves sharaf and, and honor. Give him something to make him feel proud. And so the Prophet gave him, remember this is from last uh, lesson, the Prophet gave him, whoever enters your house will be safe. And so now he rushes back to Mecca and he says, come to my house, I guarantee you will be safe, right? And this shows us Abbas understood Abu Sufyan's uh, psychology. <coughs> and he runs through the streets of Mecca, the people start panicking, they start running and rushing helter and skelter, the people gather around him and he's telling them all of the details, I was just with, he doesn't tell them he's accepted Islam. I was just with Muhammad, he's not even saying Rasulullah now. I was just with Muhammad I've seen the army, you cannot fight, go ahead and surrender, do not uh, take up arms. And as he's surrounded by this crowd, subhanAllah, an amazing humiliation occurs and that is his own wife cannot believe that her husband is doing this. Who is Abu Sufyan's wife? Hind, Hind, Hind has done so much in the seerah. And she will still do some other things, right? We're going to study that as well next Wednesday, inshallah. She's going to still do some other interesting things, right? Hind is an interesting character, let us just say, in the seerah. And of course, she accepted Islam, so may Allah Azza wa Jal. Allah has forgiven her, she has accepted Islam. Uh, but at this point in time, obviously, she is not a Muslimah. And when she sees with her own eyes the rumors are true that her husband is telling them to surrender, she darts through the crowd. And she smacks her own husband in public. Ya Latif, right? And she twists his facial hair. I mean, this is a wife that is a wife, huh? <laughs> Women don't take notes here, okay? Uh, he twists, she twists the facial hair. And she starts giving him the most vile curses imaginable in public. Right? And it's, some of this is recorded in Ibn Ishaq, it's actually uh, a bit hilarious and funny to be honest, but these words are no longer used anymore. Right? Just kill this lazy, I don't even want to translate some of these things, but you get the point. She, she accused him of being, yani, you can imagine, you know, like in the anger here, right? Kill! I mean, this is the wife here. And she's now telling the other people of Quraysh, this, you know, whatever, 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 expletive, expletive, expletive kill this uh, cowardly, she even called him fat, which I mean is interesting here, you know what I'm saying? That's a weight issue. But the reason why she's calling him fat is to indicate laziness, is to indicate cowardice, right? I mean, for sure Abu Sufyan is a warrior. There's no question about this, but the, the, the point here is saying this is a person, he doesn't have any guts. He doesn't have any, he doesn't have any courage. And so, uh, kill this, you know, lazy, treacherous, da da da, etc. What an evil leader he has been. Meaning, how can we take you as a leader and you want to surrender? And subhanAllah, what a public humiliation, right? The wife is now, uh, you know, doing this in public to her husband. But Abu Sufyan retained his dignity. And Abu Sufyan responded back, Wayhakum, woe to you, don't let her cause you to act rashly. Calm down, telling the crowd. Don't let her cause you to act rashly, for I tell you that an army has come, you cannot fight. You cannot fight it, there's no point, you are going to lose. Come to my house, you will be safe. Once again, my house, my house, my house. One of them said, of what use is your house to all of us? Meaning, how can we all fit? Of what use is your house? Then he spills the beans. Whoever enters the haram is safe. Whoever enters his house and closes the door is safe. Whoever enters my house is safe. Now he tells them the whole story. Okay? So, 
in the end, the message of the Prophet ﷺ is conveyed. And so Ibn Ishaq said the people began running into their houses, scurrying away. The people began running to the haram. Because realize, not everybody has a house. There will be travelers, there will be hujjaj, there will be mu'tamirin. Not everybody owns a place of residence, right? Uh, and not everybody can go to their house. Their house might be on the other side of the city. So the Prophet ﷺ gave them a number of alternatives. You can go to the haram, that's the center, downtown, right in front of the Kaaba. Stay there, you will be safe. You can go to your own houses. You will be safe. And there are certain public houses. Now, it is also said the Prophet allowed the house of Abbas to become an open sanctuary and the house of Abu Sufyan. And maybe one or two other houses. The books of Sirah might mention other houses as well. The point is there were two or three public houses all open uh, that anybody can go there. And there's the Haram and there is your house. And uh, the Prophet divided the army into three uh, as we said, contingents, and the one of them uh, entered Mecca from the, well, it will be the western side in our time, and the other entered Mecca from the eastern side. These were the two, two main entrances of Mecca, and he specifically forbade them, do not fight anybody, do not unsheathe your sword, do not kill anyone, unless they attack you, then you can fight back in defense. Otherwise, it is forbidden to kill anybody and that except he said he uh, a few people and he mentioned them by name if you see these people you may kill them and these names will come later on inshallah but otherwise the general rule was you cannot fight anybody and in this immediate chaos a small group of Qurayshis banded together and they decided to fight back how many the books of seerah do not give us much details about this minor skirmish. And what is very clear is that it was a chaotic skirmish. How, I mean, they literally had probably half an hour. They literally had, you know, just minutes to go running around, get some people, get whatever weapons, weapons they had. So the books of Sira only mention a line or two, and it's very clear that it wasn't an organized uh, a, a assault against the Muslims. It was just helter-skelter, it was chaotic, and the one in charge of it was Ikrimah, the son of Abu Jahl. Ikrimah ibn Abu Jahl, he could not imagine refusing and along with him uh, he, he gathered together the two most famous leaders that were still alive, Safwan ibn Umayyah and Suhail ibn Amr. Safwan ibn Umayyah and Suhail ibn Amr, we have dealt with all of these characters throughout Badr and Uhud and whatnot. Uh, of course, uh, Suhail ibn Amr is the one who did Hudaybiyah, the, the, the one whose son was being tortured and chained. Right, Abu Jandal, that's the son of Suhail ibn Amr. And uh, Safwan ibn Umayyah. Umayyah is of course the famous one uh, who persecuted the Bilal and all of them. This is Umayyah and this is the son of uh, Umayyah, Safwan ibn Umayyah. So basically these Ru'asa or these uh, Baqiyya or the rem remnants of the Quraysh, they decided to band together and fight back. But it was doomed to failure. How can you possibly fight 10,000 people? And the books of Sirah do not mention much details at all. It only mentions that a handful were killed of the Quraysh. Uh, Ibn Ishaq mentions 13 or 14. Waqidi or others say like 20. But still, okay, what, from the whole city, a dozen. Or, or maximum less than two dozen. And from the Muslims, two or three were killed uh, and they were in the flank of Khalid ibn al-Walid. So uh, it was the flank that Khalid was heading, the uh, small contingent attacked them, otherwise the rest of them were not able to attack and thus Mecca was finally conquered on the uh, 20th of Ramadan in the 8th year of the Hijrah with barely any loss of life. After 21 years of difficulty, the Prophet ﷺ returned the undisputed uh, conqueror of the city of his birth, of the greatest city in the history of uh, not just Islam but of humanity, and uh, the people of Mecca could not possibly put up a fight and therefore the Prophet ﷺ, after the city was conquered, the Prophet ﷺ then entered it upon his camel from the area that is called in today's time Quday. And Quday is a famous area outside of Mecca. Uh, if you come from uh, the north southeastern side, uh, the, the east, the 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 so today is the parking lot yes but it is on the northeastern side or is it uh, southeast I think southeastern side uh, the, it's well known to be the large parking lot if you want to park your car and take the bus into Mecca Kuday has a massive parking lot that's Kuday so the process entered from that area. Uh, Kuday riding uh, his camel and he was dressed in his armor so he's not in his ihram and uh, we, we know from one book of hadith he had a red turban on him on this day and it was flung underneath his 
underneath his beard. So he didn't have the turban behind him, he had it underneath and uh, beneath him. And uh, Ibn Ishaq and so many other books of Sirah and whatnot mention that the Prophet lowered his head all the way down to the camel, so much so that his forehead was almost touching the back of the camel. And he was praising Allah, glorifying Him, saying the takbir and reciting Surah Al-Fatih. We have given you a manifest victory. And the Prophet made his way through the streets of Mecca, everybody in awe of him, until he stood in front of the Kaaba, still on his camel, and in front of the house of Allah that his own father Ibrahim had built. He began doing tawaf, riding the camel, and he had in his hand a staff. He did not have a sword, he had in his hand a staff. And every time he passed by one of the idols, and there were over 350, some say 360 idols, one for every day of their year. Every time he passed by an idol, Ibn Ishaq mentions, he would point towards that idol with the staff. And if the idol had the face forward, it would fall forward. If the idol had the face backward, it would fall backward. Meaning every one of those idols was destroyed directly by the Prophet ﷺ. A miracle of Allah by simply pointing the staff. And he kept on reciting that uh, The truth has come and falsehood has disappeared and vanished. Verily, the falsehood, batil, must eventually disappear. And he kept on going around the Kaaba, doing tawaf, and every time he passed by the black stone as well, with the same staff, he would touch the black stone. With the same staff, he would touch the hajar. Uh, he did not get off the camel. He did tawaf around the camel, or, uh, around, uh, uh, sorry, on the camel, around the uh, Kaaba. And he called the people, the people had been gathering while he's doing tawaf. And this haram is filling up with the inhabitants of the city of Mecca until finally the entire city of Mecca has now packed inside of the haram. And in front of the Ansar, in front of the Muhajirun, in front of the people of Mecca, he calls for the keys of the Kaaba. And the keys of the Kaaba are given to him. So he takes the keys and with his own blessed hands, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he unlocks the doors of the Kaaba and he enters the Kaaba, the, 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 he enters the Kaaba, the house of Allah Azza wa Jal, and he finds inside the Kaaba as well, signs of paganism and idolatry. He finds uh, pigeons made out of sacred or, or blessed, not you know, from their perspective, you know, materials, uh, precious stones. He finds other small things and he takes them out and he throws them and he cracks them until inside of the Kaaba as well is cleansed. And there were images inside the Kaaba of them. There was images of angels and there was on one side an image of Ibrahim and in his hands were the arrows that are used to throw in front of the idols. And the Prophet said, Allah. May Allah curse them. What has Ibrahim got to do with this divination, with the shirk? Allah. May Allah curse them. What has Ibrahim got to do with this uh, paganism? And then he recited, Ma kana Ibrahimu Yahudiyan wala Nasraniyan walakin kana Hanifan Muslima wa ma kana min al mushrikeen. Ibrahim was neither Yahudi nor Nasrani. Rather, he was a pure Hanif that was a Muslim and he was not of the uh, pagans. According to one report, uh, not in Ibn Ishaq, this is not Ibn Ishaq, according to one report, it's in Ibn Sa'ad and others, that on one side of the Kaaba there was a picture of Mary and Jesus. Now, frankly, this is a little bit bizarre. And firstly, the report is very weak. Secondly, why would the Quraysh draw Mary and Jesus? It does not make any sense. For them to draw Ibrahim makes sense. For them to draw the angels makes sense because they thought the angels were the daughters of God. Nonetheless, even if there was such an image, we learn from Ibn Ishaq, all of these images were wiped away and destroyed. All of these images were uh, destroyed. Thus, when all of the idols had been demolished, and the house of Allah had returned to the purity that it deserves, the way that Allah Azza wa Jal had intended it, and the way that his father Ibrahim had built it. Then, when he had cleansed the haram of all of the filth of idolatry, he then turned to face them, speaking from the door of the Kaaba, standing on the doorsteps of the Kaaba, with the doors of the Kaaba open in front of him. Wallahi, imagine the scene. Imagine what a, 
I mean, this is such a pinnacle, wallahi, of the seerah. Here we have the house of Allah Azza wa Jal. Here we have the people of Mecca, the Quraysh and the Ansar and the Muhajirun, Muslims and pagans. More than at least 12,000 people are going to be here in the entire vicinity. We have the 10,000 that are the Muslims, at least 2,000 of the local, the Qurayshis. And all of them are waiting. What will the Prophet do? And he cleanses the Kaaba. He opens up the doors. Now he stands and he faces them, speaking to them from the doors of the Kaaba. What symbolism, what imagery. The doors are open. Here is Rasulullah standing at the house, the Baytullah, standing on the steps of Baytullah. And in front of him are thousands and tens of thousands of people. And he then gives them a very short khutbah and sermon that Ibn Ishaq and others record. That he says, La ilaha illallah wahda, nasara abda, wa sadaqa wahda, wa hazam al ahzaba wahda, la ilaha illallah. So he begins with tawheed. He begins, La ilaha illallah, there is no deity worthy of worship other than Allah, and he has fulfilled his promise. He has aided his servants. Hazam al ahzaba wahda, he has destroyed all of the armies by himself. All of the enemies that were opposed to the religion have been destroyed by himself. Then he said, verily, every single claim and matter of jahiliyyah has been abolished by me. Everything of the ways of old is gone. We have established tawheed. We will now negate everything from the days of jahiliyyah, except two things. Two things will remain of the customs and the ways of Jahiliyyah, two things will remain. And that is the uh, sadana and the siqaya. And this is basically the custodianship of the Kaaba and the feeding of the pilgrims. Now, the custodianship of the Kaaba and the feeding of the pilgrims. So, the, uh, the, the, the custodianship of the Kaaba was of course the keys, and the keys were the right of Uthman ibn Mad'un and his tribe, and the keeping of the, uh, or sorry, the hospitality to the pilgrims was the Banu Hashim's responsibility, right? So the Banu Hashim had the responsibility of Siqaya, of course Zamzam, that's Abdul Muttalib, right? The, the, the responsibility of feeding the pilgrims and giving them water, this is the Banu Hashim. And the responsibility of the tribe, the, 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 the keys is Banu Abdullah. So the Prophet said, all of the customs of Jahiliyyah are destroyed, except for these two. We will keep these two traditions alive. Everything else is gone. Then he said, Verily Allah has abolished the arrogance of Jahiliyyah. What is the arrogance of Jahiliyyah? And the, the, the arrogance of Jahiliyyah is the tribal orders. The arrogance of Jahiliyyah is the hierarchy of customs and tribes. Allah has abolished all of the arrogance of Jahiliyyah. كُلُّكُم مِّنْ آدَمُ وَآدَمُ مِّنْ تُرَابِ يَا إِيُّهَا النَّاسُ إِنَّا خَلَقْنَاكُمْ مِّنْ ذَكَرٍ وَأُنْثَى وَجَعَلْنَاكُمْ شُعُوبًا وَقَبَائِلَ لِتَعَارَفُوا إِنَّ أَكْرَمَكُمْ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ أَتْقَاكُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ عَلِيمٌ خَبِيرٌ He recited the entire verse. And by the way, the same paragraph was also said in the Hajjatul Wada' as well. The same message was given there as it was given here. And that is, all of you are from Adam, Adam was from dust. Basically, the mannerisms of Jahiliyyah, where there is a hierarchy of nobility. If you're Qurashi, if you're Hudali, if you're Khuza'a, each one has a role, all of that is gone. All of you are from Adam, and Adam was from dust. And therefore, there's going to be a new system and order, and that is the order of Inna Akramakum Indallahi Atqaqum. The one who has higher privilege is the one who has more taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then, with all of the Quraysh gathered around, that is when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam asked that famous question that, Ma bikum. What do you think that I shall do to you? What do you think that I shall do to you? And so they said, Khayra, you're going to do the best. Khayra, Akhun Kareemun Wabnu Akhin Kareem. You are one of us. You're a noble brother. And you're the son of a noble brother. Your father as well is one of us. You must do good. 
You are our brother and you are the son of a brother. And the Prophet ﷺ gave those famous lines, اِذْهَبُوا فَأَنْتُمُ الطُّلَقَاءَ لَا تَثْرِيبَ عَلَيْكُمُ الْيَوْمِ يَغْفِرُ اللَّهُ لَكُمْ وَهُوَ أَرْحَمُ الرَّاحِمِينَ Go for you are free. There is no blame on you. Today he quoted Yusuf ﷺ and uh, we gave a whole tafsir of Surah Yusuf as well and we mentioned uh, how beautiful and, and uh, uh, the, the ending of Yusuf's story was. And this came down when the Prophet ﷺ most needed it in Mecca, when he was being persecuted, when he was being ridiculed and tortured and the message was given to him from the very beginning that when you shall be in the position of power here is Yusuf on the throne there are his brothers doing sajda in front of him a time will come you are on the throne as well you are on the house of Allah and everybody is physically underneath you everybody is literally in your control you must follow the footsteps of Yusuf go for you are free today wallahi words cannot do justice to the scene wallahi the imagination simply just goes to places where we cannot yani we what what a what a wish we could see this type of uh, scene that is being played out and enacted in front of our eyes we simply cannot describe the significance and the uh, beauty of what has just occurred but some benefits before we move on that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam when he conquered mecca he wanted to honor mecca like no other city had been honored and he conquers mecca by commanding the conquerors not to fight when they are attacking the city not to attack even and never in the history of humanity has an army been told when they're attacking a city don't attack don't conquer don't unsheathe your swords Never in the history of humanity has a city been conquered simply by the army marching in. And this is something that Allah blessed Mecca with. And also when it is conquered, we see the humility, the humbleness of the Prophet He does not enter it like a pompous, arrogant king. He does not enter with his chest puffed up with pride, haughty and mighty. No, he enters in a manner that is unprecedented once again in human history. Neither before nor after has any conqueror entered with his head bowed down in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So much so that his face is almost touching the back of the camel. What humility is this? And how, who else can possibly demonstrate that type of gratefulness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Notice as well that when he comes in as a conqueror, the first thing he does is not to deal with the business of conquering. The first thing he does is to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The first thing he does, he goes straight to the Kaaba and he venerates and honors Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the priority right now. Deal with the biggest victory in mankind, we'll deal with that later. Right now, thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by doing the tawaf. And as he does the tawaf, he, along with worshipping Allah, he does the second greatest act and that is, uh, you know, it, you need to do it as you worship Allah and that is to reject taghut. That is to, la ilaha illallah. He is doing both. He's worshipping Allah, negating the worship of other than Allah. And so as he's doing tawaf, he destroys the filth that is around the holiest place on earth and he finishes with the external idols. Then he deals with the internal idols and filth and then he deals with the Quraysh after demonstrating for them what truly is the message of Islam and that is the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. In his sermon, he summarizes the main points and that is he praises Allah and la ilaha illallah wahda that he just begins simply by this. This is the reality of what I've been calling you to for over 20 years now. La ilaha illallah wahda. That Allah Azza wa Jal alone is worthy of worship. Nasara abda wa sadaqa wahda wa hazam al ahzaba wahda. La ilaha illallah. Then after praising Allah and glorifying Him, He then mentions to them that all of your old ways, they must be abolished and gone. All of them are gone now. This is now a new system that will come in. And this system is only the one of taqwa has a higher status over the one who has lesser taqwa. Otherwise, everybody is from Adam and everybody is from, uh, and Adam was from uh, Turab. Then he asks them, what do you think I should do with you? What do you think I will do with you? And by asking them what should be done, this is such beautiful psychology. He doesn't just command and say, rather he asks them. And by asking them, so many things are demonstrated. First and foremost, 
his own superiority over them, that now I am in charge of you, I have now the power in my hands. So he gives them that in a very gentle manner. He doesn't boast, he doesn't, no, rather he says, you understand it is now my turn, so what do you think I should do with you? So he establishes the rank that he deserves in such a humble manner. At the same time, the implicit fact of the question or the implicit tone of the question, you have done so much wrong, you deserve a punishment. But he doesn't say that. It's implied. Once again, it is the perfection of his akhlaq. He doesn't say, how could you and why did you? But he does want to get the point across. You guys really messed up basically. You guys really did something wrong. And so he does it in such a beautiful manner. What do you think I should do with you? And automatically the Impression, not impression, it's implied here, it's understood that what have you done? You deserve to be punished, even though he doesn't say that. And by asking the question, he extracts from them their hopes, their, ad their admiration for him. That in the end of the day, when push comes to shove, they knew he was a good man. And he allows them to testify with their own tongues what they knew but they were too cowardly to say before or they were too arrogant to say before. So he brings it out of their hearts and they all testify, Khaira, you must do the best. After all, you are an Akhun Kareem. You're such a generous man who belongs to us and your father as well belonged to us. Akhun Kareemun wabnu Akhin Kareemun. And no doubt this demonstrates our Prophet is rahmatan lil alameen. No doubt this and Ta'if put together. Wallahi, this is the seerah summarized. What he did with the Ta'if when he was persecuted and alone. What he did in Mecca at the conqueror and at the pinnacle of his strength and the both times he forgave. When he was alone and when he was at the head of an army. At the both times he forgave for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No doubt this shows his character that he is rahmatan lil alameen. But it also shows us the reality of this religion. This religion is not about bloodshed. This religion is not about military victory and, and war. This religion is about the worship of Allah. However it's done. If it requires war or if it's done through peace. Sometimes strictness, usually mercy. And this is demonstrated in the seerah from the beginning to the end. Also, uh, one of the interesting points here as well, uh, that it is said he prayed inside the Kaaba. Now, we don't know exactly when he prayed. Did he pray before the sermon or after the sermon? We don't know exactly when. Some, uh, some can say that he prayed before he, he, uh, he gave the sermon on the footsteps. And according to uh, others, he prayed after the sermon. Allah knows best, you really, I mean, it's not, you know, how are you going to resolve this? I can say my gut instinct, but that doesn't mean much here. But Allah knows best, it would make sense that he prayed before he gave the uh, sermon or the talk. That he prayed two rak'ah, and according to some, he prayed six rak'ah, two, 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 in three different directions. And Bilal was with him. And uh, it is narrated in Sahih Muslim and others that later on, many years later, Ibn Umar uh, asked Bilal, where did the Prophet pray when he went inside the Kaaba? And so Bilal pointed, he prayed here, he prayed here, he prayed here. So Ibn Umar would always want to pray in those places as well. And of course, I mean, for those who do not know, uh, praying inside the Kaaba is an established sunnah from this act. But from this act, we know it is sunnah to pray inside the Kaaba. It is a sunnah that is very rare in our times because the Kaaba is locked up. May Allah Azza wa Jal give me and all of you an opportunity to practice this sunnah. Uh, but if anybody is blessed to do this, so which direction do you pray in? So the uh, Bilal and others told us that when you're inside the Kaaba, you may pray facing any of the walls. You take the wall as your Qibla and you just pray this wall, that wall, that wall, any wall, you may pray. And he began with the wall that was opposite the door. So he walked in and he prayed with his back to the door. And he prayed two rak'ah right in front of the wall that is facing the uh, the door of the uh, of the Kaaba. So, uh, according to one report, he prayed before the sermon, and my kind of gut instinct would say this makes sense. Some say he then prayed and then he came back out. Allah knows best. Then when he came back out, and he still had the keys in his hands, Ali ibn Abi Talib says to him, "Ya Rasulullah." Why don't you make the why don't you make the siqaya and the hijaba together 
and put it to us. I.e., why don't you combine the care of the Kaaba and the feeding of the pilgrims to the Banu Hashim? Now, subhanAllah, this goes back to a hundred-year-old custom now. And Ali wants the honor for the Banu Hashim. Ali wants now to combine, because if you remember from the earliest Sira lectures, we were talking about the rivalry, and the way that it was resolved was that uh, Abdul Manaf and others, they decided to distribute. One son gets this, one son gets that, one son gets this, right? And this rivalry was kept alive. And it was manifested when the Kaaba was being rebuilt and everybody wanted to put the black stone in the time of the Prophet. So now again Ali, he wants to now uh, you know, get it for the Banu Hashim. And the Prophet did not answer him. Rather he said, Aina Uthman ibn Talha. Where is Uthman ibn Talha? He is the Banu Abdul He is the one who we talked about his conversion. So he was brought immediately to the Prophet and he said, this, go ahead and take your keys, Ya Uthman. Today is the day of Al-Wafa Wal-Bir, fulfilling the promises and giving back what is due. And Allah Azza wa Jal had revealed before at this that Adul Amanati ila Ahliha, that return the Amanat to the people that deserve it. And uh, many scholars have interpreted this verse to be applicable to this incident that the Prophet gave the keys back to Uthman ibn Talha and since he gave it back to Uthman ibn Talha since that time up until our times never in the history of our religion has anybody dared to take it away from the descendants of Uthman to this day you will see it on YouTube uh, maybe next time maybe we can hook it up I'll show you they interviewed the descendant of Uthman ibn Talha he's on YouTube they, they interviewed his 42nd or I don't know how many, you know, uh, descendant. And uh, that is the actual descendant of Uthman ibn Talha. They still have, of course, the key has changed, obviously, because the door has changed, obviously, right? But the, the, the symbolic key that is given, it is still in the tribe of uh, the uh, Banu Abd Dar, and it is still in the descendants of Uthman ibn Talha. Now, remember, remember what allowed the Prophet to attack if you like or conquer Mecca what had allowed him to do this who can remind me after all there was the treaty so when one of the allies of the Quraysh had attacked one of the allies of the Muslims would you have to remember the tribe names <laughs> yes good Banu Bakr and Khuza'a okay so the process had not forgotten this is what allowed us to do this so he now allowed the Khuza'a uh, to attack the Banu Bakr as a retaliation. As a retaliation because that was after all the purpose that they had killed more than 20 people and he allowed them to engage in a minor skirmish and he said you have until Asr and only Asr. So they literally had few hours and most of the time is in the heat of the sun. And it was intentionally done to basically curb it and end of story. You have only until Asr and then that is it. And after the uh, prayer of Asr, the Prophet then forbade them. There shall be no more bloodshed in the Haram now. The Haram has returned back to the sanctity that it had. And it so happened that on the next day, one of the people of Khuza'a did kill one of the people of the Banu Bakr uh, in revenge. And the Prophet became extremely angry. And he gave a sermon to them. And he threatened them to do this again. And he said, if it is done again, then the one who does it, it, sh it shall be permissible for the murderer's family to extract qisas. You're not under my protection anymore, basically. And he said that, uh, that the, uh, the haram has returned to its sanctity the way that Allah Azza wa had created it. And if anybody tells you that the Prophet ﷺ fought and shed blood in it, then you say to him, this is a hadith, then you say to him, Allah has allowed the Prophet ﷺ and he didn't allow you. And Allah only allowed him for one hour of the day, sa'atan min nahar. He only allowed him for, now sa'at, 
doesn't just mean one hour, it means like a time of the day. Allah only allowed him for one bit of the day. And then at now Asr time basically, it is now returned to the way that it has been. Now, uh, the, conquer, the conquest of Mecca was a unique conquest in that not only was no fighting allowed, no war booty was taken, no POW was taken, no land was conquered, there was no actual battle if you like. It was something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed him with because it is a sacred land and a, uh, a haram. Uh, the Prophet as we said before he entered Mecca, he had mentioned a few people that... Uh, were not given amnesty. So we'll quickly mention those few people, who they were, and then return to the story of uh, the, the conquest of Mecca. Uh, and this is not going to be the last episode of the conquest of Mecca. We have another, at least another two, I think, uh, to go. Uh, the email said today is the last, it's not the last. Not the, We have another uh, one or two to go. Uh, so the process, of, when he sent in the commanders with the conquest of Mecca, he said everybody should be spared except for a few people. Now, who are these few people? Books of Sirah mention different numbers. Al-Waqidi says there were exactly six, four men and two women. But Ibn Ishaq does not give a number, but he gives names that Waqidi does not give. And Ibn Sa'id as well. So the earliest books of Sirah mention, some say some mention six, some mention seven, some mention eight, and some even say nine. But even if it's six to nine, so between six and nine, right? This is the number of people that were not uh, spared. So, from a city of maybe 2,000, less than a dozen were mentioned by name. And for these people, they were to, the, the, the Muslims were told, for these people, you may kill them wherever you find them. It doesn't matter. And who are these people? And the beauty of it is that even these people, more than half were eventually forgiven. Even this list that was an ex, uh, uh, that was an exception, still in the end, many of them were forgiven. Who are these people? Number one on the list, Ikrimah ibn Abi Jahal. I will talk about him in a while. Ikrimah, the son of the Fir'aun, because the Prophet said, Abu Jahal is the Fir'aun of my ummah. Number one is Ikrimah ibn Abi Jahal. Number two on this list, list is Abdullah ibn Khattal. Abdullah ibn Khattal. And Abdullah ibn Khattal, he had converted to Islam and came to Medina, performed the Hijrah. The Prophet sent him on uh, an expedition, him and another Sahabi, to give a message to somebody. And on the way there, Abdullah ibn Khattal murdered the Sahabi, took his stuff and fled back to Mecca and became a murtad. So Ibn Khattal was not allowed to, and not only that, he then purchased two slave girls who were known for their poetry and he asked them or he charged them with writing poetry against the Muslims and against the Prophet which is of course in those days this is the height of propaganda to write these types of poetry. So he purchases two well-known you know, poets, female poets that were slaves and he puts them full time that you're going to just write poetry against the Prophet and against Islam. So this is Abdullah ibn Khattal and as ibn Khattal with a ta and, uh, and some books say Abdullah ibn al-Akhtal so Abdullah ibn Khattal or Akhtal and uh, ibn, uh, ibn al-Akhtal or ibn Khattal he had a very harsh execution he actually fled to the Haram itself and he uh, jumped onto the doors of the Kaaba. This is when the army is coming in the process and still outside. He hasn't come yet. This is obviously before the speech, right? So he jumped onto the doors of the Kaaba and uh, he begged for forgiveness and he said, protect me from the Kaaba, like from the honor of the Kaaba, because the Kaaba is the sacred place. You're not supposed to do any bloodshed, obviously, even the days of Jahiliyyah. So when the Sahaba saw him and he took the curtain of the Kaaba and he put it around himself, don't kill me. In other words, this is the height of sanctity. You understand, right? Don't kill me. Like using the, the, the curtains of the Kaaba, he's clinging onto it. Even the Sahaba felt this is too much, right? They, we can't do this now. So they actually sent an emissary back and they said, Ya Rasulullah, Ibn al Akhtal, he's protecting himself with the curtains of the Kaaba. What should we do? And the Prophet said, Uqtuluhu, kill him. So he was executed. So it was a very harsh punishment and was executed right then and there. Uh, uh, there was another uh, execution, Miqyas ibn Subaba. He too had uh, pretended to become a Muslim only in order to do a revenge killing. So long story, but uh, one of the Sahaba had killed his brother 
Uh, and so he wanted to get revenge, so he pretend, pretended to be a Muslim. He then entered Medina, he then assassinated, he then returned. So he, he too was uh, executed. So these two are executed. Uh, one of the most interesting stories is Abdullah ibn Abi Sarah or Abdullah ibn Sa'd ibn Abi Sarah uh, that he accepted Islam, emigrated to Medina. He's a Qurashi, uh, emigrated to Medina, and he was one of the few who began writing for the Prophet as a scribe. And eventually he became murtad. And he returned back to Mecca and he started fabricating lies against the Prophet saying that the Quran was from his dictation. Now this story by the way is used a lot by Orientalists. The story is they jump on the story. And he would say that uh, I would change the Quran. And, and this is a lie, I mean he's just smearing. Uh, you know, uh, Islam with, and I would change the Quran and uh, he, uh, the Prophet say, Azizun Hakim, I write Samiun Alim, let's say. And so he became Murtadi, returned back to, uh, to uh, Mecca. Uh, his story is actually very interesting. Uh, very quickly, we'll just say that uh, what happened was he, he was the foster brother of Uthman ibn Affan. Uthman ibn Affan, i.e., they have the same foster mother. So they're very close. And when Mecca was conquered, he somehow secretly managed to, to get to Uthman and begged him for forgiveness. So Uthman hid him until things calmed down. Until the Mecca was conquered, everybody's calmed down. After a few days, Uthman brings him directly to the Prophet And he begs for forgiveness and asks uh, to be forgiven and accepts Islam. He's standing in front of the Prophet all of the Sahaba around. The Prophet does not do anything. Complete silence. And the silence becomes so thick and dense, but nobody, what can you do? After a long pause, the Prophet says, okay, accepted. Then he leaves. The Prophet then turns to the Sahaba and said, Weren't any of you wise enough to understand? Why I didn't say yes? Why didn't you execute him? Meaning the command was to execute. That was the previous command, right? The command was to execute. Weren't any of you wise enough to understand? So one of the Ansar said, Ya Rasulullah, why didn't you motion with your eyes? Like this, you know? <laughs> why didn't you motion with your eyes? And the Prophet said, it is not befitting that a prophet of Allah give signals with his eyes to kill somebody. It's not, yani, even when I did it, you're all laughing. It's not befitting, right? For a Rasul, for a Nabi to give isharat with his eyes, it is not befitting. But subhanAllah, and this, that's a beautiful story by the way. So much benefit from the story. Because this man, Abdullah ibn Abi Sarah, when he repented, he truly repented. And eventually he, Hasuna uh, Islam, his Islam became very strong. He regretted what he had done. Umar appointed him to be uh, the governor of Egypt, by the way. He was the governor of Egypt, one of the first governors of Egypt. In fact, the first governor of Egypt. Uh, and, hmm? After Amr. Amr was the conqueror. Uh, and so the first political figure that was sent uh, to rule over Egypt was uh, Abdullah ibn Abi Sarah. And uh, he lived a very righteous life and he died a, a beautiful death as well. Uh, and subhanAllah, it really shows us that... And we've said this so many times, but our Rasul is indeed the best human, but he is not God. He is not Allah. And Allah had a different plan for Abdullah bin Abi Sarah. You know? So his and no doubt, and he, no doubt he deserved to be executed. And had he been executed, it is deserving. But Allah had something else planned. And so this is one of those who was not uh, executed. Uh, also on the list to be executed were the two women, the, the, the slave girls we talked about, right? The ones who had written lots of poetry and their names were Fartana and Sara. Fartana and Sara. There's, these were the two names. And of these two, uh, Fartana was executed. Sara, eventually she fled, eventually she asked for forgiveness and uh, she was forgiven. So her life was spared as well. Um, so we talked about Ibn Akhtal and Miqyas, they were killed. Abdullah ibn Abi Sarah was spared. Of the two women, one was spared. Ikrimah ibn Abi Jahl uh, was eventually spared as well. Very, very interesting story of Ikrimah ibn Abi Jahl. That when Mecca was conquered, he was the one 
trying to fight. When he lost, he fled. He fled immediately. He didn't wait for the Prophet to enter in. And he fled to Jeddah. He took a ship to Habasha. He went to Abyssinia. That he was going to go into exile. What's he going to do now? Where is he going to go? Arabia is conquered. So he fle flees to Jeddah. From Jeddah he goes into a ship and he goes to Abyssinia. And on the way to Abyssinia, a beautiful story happens. And that is that the ship, uh, now obviously a few days he would have been in Jeddah, then he's now getting on the ship to Abyssinia. And so a, a storm overtakes the ship. And you know, you can imagine these are going to be their, you know, dinghy ships back in those days and very old and whatnot. And the captain of the ship says that we don't have the power to withstand this storm. For sure we're going to drown. Looking at the, 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 the conditions here, for sure we're going to drown. So now is the time to make dua to Allah. For wallahi, you and I both know that our gods are not going to help us at this point in time. Now the captain was a pagan as well, right? So he now, he's telling the people on the ship, you have only one way to be saved, that's a miracle from up there. And you better make dua to him and not to these false gods because we both know, let's, let's cut all of the crap basically, we both know only one being is going to help us and that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All of these other idols are not going to help us. Ikrima says, that was when it struck me. Yani subhanallah, imagine, right? This man as well, Allah had intended something good for him. Even though he's the son of the Fir'aun of this Ummah. Even though the number one on the list, kill whatever you see is Ikrimah. Number one on the list. And wallahi he deserves to be on the list. But Allah has another plan. So on the ship, after 20 years of being who he is, then he said the light bulb went off basically. And Well he didn't say that obviously, but you get the point. And he said that it occurred to me then, that if our gods will not help us when we need them, then why should we worship these gods when we don't need them? Right? It's simple common sense here. When we need them most, these gods are not going to help us. So then why at ease and comfort, we should go back on land and worship these gods and forget about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he realized after all that La ilaha illallah is true. Which shows us over and over again that these pagans, many of them, Abu Sufyan included, and he heard Ikram and others, they genuinely believed that these gods were living beings. These gods could hear and obey and, and listen to and whatnot and give them what they wanted. And therefore, do not be surprised when you meet somebody who still believes in these types of things. Or whatever their culture and civilization says. It's not that easy to be persuaded from the religion that you happen to be born into. This is the fact of the matter. And finally, Ikrimah says, and this is his own story, he's narrating it, it's a long hadith. Ikrimah says that, Oh Allah, I promise you, if you save me, I will accept Islam. And I will go to your Rasul Wasallam, and I will find his his. Uh, and I will put my hand in his hand and I will find him to be forgiving and merciful. So Allah saved Ikrimah. And as soon as he went back to Jeddah, he immediately went to uh, the Prophet who was still in Mecca before Hunayn. And he had wrapped himself in a turban so that because he was, if anybody would see him, he would kill him immediately. He had wrapped a turban around his face. And he made his way, very dangerous, made his way through the camp until he stood in front of the Prophet and he now unfurled himself and he said, Ashhadu Allah ilaha illallah wa ashhadu annaka la Rasulullah. Then he gave his whole story. And so when he gave the story, so the Prophet then accepted his Islam and Ikrimah, he died a shaheed fighting against the Romans later on. So he clearly showed himself to be uh, sincere uh, as a convert. So here's yet another one that was spared. Uh, one or two more are mentioned. Three more we'll quickly mention that we're done for today. Uh, three more we'll mention. So how many have we mentioned so far? Five. No, definitely more than five. Ikrimah ibn al-Akhtal, Miqyas, Abdullah ibn Abi Sarah, and the two women. We've mentioned six. Of these six, how many were actually killed so far? Two, three. Three, three. three are so, so far, three are killed and three are spared. Okay, we'll mention another three to make it nine. Of these three, two are killed and one is spared. Okay, so a total of five people killed out of more than 2,000. So who are these other three? 
very quickly number one is al-huwayrith ibn al-nuqayd al-huwayrith ibn al-nuqayd uh, and number two is habbar ibn al-aswad who can remind me who habbar ibn al-aswad is who can remind me who habbar ibn al-aswad is He, he remembers I said the name. I like this. I know you said the name somewhere in the seerah. MashaAllah. Is he the one who attacked Prophet, uh, uh, Prophet during the Ahud? No. no. He was, he was yeah, he was killed right then and there. Yeah. No, this is two years or three years ago. This is a long time ago. Do you not remember the Habbarid dynasty of India? Yes, the Habbarid dynasty of India, of the first Islamic dynasties ever in Multan, in Sindh, in Pakistan. You Pakistanis, and I should say us Pakistanis, should know this dynasty. The city of Mansura, which is outside of uh, Multan and Karachi and others, still to this day you find the remnants, right? They are called the Habbarids. This is their ancestor, Habbar, whom the Prophet by name said he should not be spared. Obviously, he was spared because there's a dynasty called the Habbad dynasty. Okay, so what did Habbar do? Can you remind me now that I told you who it is or you still don't remember? Still don't remember. So Habbar was the one who refused to allow Zainab, the daughter of the Prophet to emigrate. Remember in the Battle of Badr, Zainab's husband, right? The Prophet had made an agreement with him that I will set you free if you send my daughter back. That was the agreement, right? And so he followed up with that promise. But he acted a bit foolishly in that he publicly sent the daughter back. And he should have done it discreetly. So in broad daylight, he sends Zainab with uh, their belongings and everything. And the Quraysh are fuming, how dare we return, you know, uh, the daughter of Muhammad to That's never going to happen. And they surround, and they don't know what to do because it's a woman. Habbar was the one, took his spear and uh, shoved it at the animal, not at her. The animal uh, jostled backwards, she fell off, she was pregnant, she had a miscarriage. She lost the baby. This is Habbar. Okay, so Habbar as well, his name was um, put on the list. Eventually he too repents and he is forgiven. So he manages to get to the process and he's forgiven. Uh, Huwaydith ibn al-Nuqayyid, he did something similar, um, but to the two younger daughters of the Prophet and there was no pregnancy, there was no miscarriage, but uh, when the Prophet immigrated, so this is way before the early part of the seerah, when the Prophet immigrated, obviously his daughters did not immigrate at the time. He immigrated with Abu Bakr, obviously. So he had entrusted Abbas to bring uh, the other two daughters that were not married, to bring them uh, and save deliver him in Mecca and so Fatima and Umm Kulthum were being taken by Abbas and this this Qurashi Huwaydith ibn al-Nuqayyid he was the one who uh, refused to let them go for a while he threatened them he uh, the, the two girls fell off of the horse as well, and so he also caused them harm. But obviously, they did. They they lived obviously. But yeah, and he, the very fact that you would do this to two girls uh, and threaten Abbas and whatnot, so he was also not uh, spared, and he was executed. So uh, it was Ali who then executed, because Ali is married to Fatima. As full perfect justice here, it was Ali who then executed. And the final person on the list, I said two were killed. No, two were spared. Sorry, one was killed. Two were spared. Habbar was spared. And then the final man on the list was spared. Hurwaydith only was killed. The final man on the list, you all know his story. We've done it in a lot of detail. And that is Wahshi. Wahshi as well was put on the list. That he has killed Hamza and he should not be spared. And Wahshi knew that he would not be spared. So Wahshi, as soon as Mecca was conquered, he fled to Ta'if. He fled to Ta'if and he only converted when the people of Ta'if converted, after Hunayn. When the people of Ta'if converted and they sent their delegation, so Wahshi was a member of that delegation. And Wahshi accompanied the delegation to the Prophet I gave you his story 
two years ago as well, that when he converted at that point in time, so the Prophet forgave him. This was now in Medina now. This is not the conquest of Mecca. This is, you know, a year later, year and a half later. So Wahshi comes and the Prophet tells him, Oh Wahshi, tell me your story in detail. And Wahshi told him all that he had done. And the Prophet is crying till his beard is now wet. And then he says, Oh Wahshi, I have forgiven you, but don't show me your face. What a punishment. Wallahi, what a punishment. Don't show me your face. Yani get away from my sight basically, right? And so Wahshi, as long as the Prophet was alive, Astaghfirullah, subhanAllah, what a, what a punishment, Wallahi. He could not be in the same area as the Prophet. Wherever is the Prophet, he has to run away. And even after, yani he was guilty of crimes and whatnot, and one of the Sahaba said, I knew that Allah would not spare the killer of Hamza. And he was guilty of drinking and whatnot till the day that he... And we don't say this, Astaghfirullah, too. And he was, in the end of the day, a, a Sahabi, and, but the Sahaba are levels. Not all of them were like Abu Bakr and Umar. And Wahshi is definitely not of those As-Sabiqun uh, Al-Awwalun. He converts at the very end and he has, uh, even if he is forgiven, but still there are, you know, taints uh, in that forgiveness. But still in the end, Radiallahu Anhum, all of them, Ajma'een. Uh, this, we're already above our time, but very quickly again, just to summarize again. So, the full list of people is nine. That multiple books of Sirah give here and there. The full list is nine. Of this full list, only four are actually killed, and five were in the end spared. So even the exceptions turn out to be exceptions. Even the exceptions by and large are forgiven, other than basically four people uh, at max, and the rest of them also are uh, forgiven. Inshallah ta'ala, we will continue next week about to the conquest of Makkah and what happened. And um, uh, and we're still in the Kaaba, by the way. The Prophet is still standing on the footsteps when we come back next week, inshallah, and then continue uh, from there.